Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll coming to you live from the Chicago airport. Doing everything I can to get you guys these shows on time and on track because I know you need them. I know you feed off them. And I got a great rock and roll show for you today. How about these bands? Kiss, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, Alice Cooper, The Scorpions, Joan Jett. You know what they all have in common? They've all worked with one of the most legendary songwriters in the music business ever, talking about Desmond Child, and they've all had, they've all had huge hits with Desmond. Uh, Desmond is in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He's won Grammys. He's also written hit songs for Ricky Martin. Yeah, Living La Vida Loca, that's his. Cher, just like Jesse James. Katy Perry, Waking Up in Vegas. How about Rat, Loving You's a Dirty Job. Uh, so many amazing songs. Desmond's going to share some of the stories behind uh, his biggest hits, like Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer and You Give Love a Bad Name. Joan Jett's I Hate Myself for Loving You. Aerosmith, Dude Looks Like a Lady. Ragdoll, Angel. Desmond's also talking about how he went from fronting his own band in the 70s becoming one of the most sought-after writers in all of music and how it all sort of happened because Paul Stanley from Kiss was a fan of Desmond's band. That's right. He wrote, I Was Made for Loving You with Paul, Heaven's on Fire, Who Wants to Be Lonely, Let's Put the X in Sex. You're going to find out what uh, Desmond's only uh, song he wrote with Paul Stanley he didn't like. He wrote about 15 with them. We're going to find out about the new album that Desmond just released. Uh, he and his band did their own version of some of the songs that he wrote and were made famous by other bands. Uh, he sang them himself and released it as Desmond Child Live. So we're here in uh, Desmond Child's studio in Nashville, and it's beautiful now. Um, but it's funny because you and I met at the Roxy, judging like a battle of the bands. I know. We were so good. <laughs> we were amazing. We were so good together. It's funny because when I showed up there, I had no idea who the other judges were. And I was sitting right between you to my left and John Varvatos to my right. And I was wearing John Varvatos clothes. And I had just been at Paul Stanley's house earlier. Obviously, one of your greatest songwriting uh, partners. So it was just one of those fateful moments. Uh, all interconnected. <laughs> exactly. Which is great, though, because we talked about uh, doing this and uh, having a chance to chat. Because, I mean, it's amazing to me. Um, with the exception of a Lennon and McCartney and maybe a Jagger and Richards, for, for, for rock and roll and beyond, maybe the best songwriter ever with partners. That's what I keep saying. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I keep telling him that, you know. But, uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the guy behind the curtain. Right. And so, you know, I just, after many, many years, decades of being a studio rat, I crawled out and decided to make an album of my own. Of hits, your own songs. Of right? my own songs. So I call my, my show like the ultimate cover band of original songs. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it's funny, though, because I was, I was watching last night uh, some stuff from Desmond Child and Rouge, which was like your original band. And we're, I'm coming out with uh, the remastered two albums, Desmond Child and Rouge albums. It's our 40th year anniversary. And new music from, from that group. So it's it's busy around here. Right. That, that was kind of like a Tony Orlando and Dawn type. No, of come on now. Now you've like, now you, now you, now we're, I'm ready to fight you. No, we were so much cooler than that. Mm. Well, I, I don't want to say that because Tony Orlando is a cool cat. It was more of a contemporary style, honestly, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, they were really a big act on mm. TV and everything. We were like underground punkers in, in, in New York, but we were combining dance beats with rock and roll and uh, kind of storytelling, kind of uh, East Village uh, storytelling so it, it was uh, more like the kind of predecessor to something like the scissor sisters or something mm -hmm. like that yeah because it was very very uh rocking but like it's very new york uh, a lot of energy and it's funny because you guys even actually were on siren live as the musical guest i know it was a crazy year we put out two albums the same year mm -hmm. uh trying to find ourselves and uh, oh jesus it was a lot for us. You know, we were in our early 20s and we weren't ready to handle all of that kind of stuff. And of course, 
everybody was talking in our ears individually saying, you don't need the group. You could be a star on your own. And so then, of course, everybody couldn't wait to fly out there and do their solo records. And then <laughs> 40 years later, we're putting out the... <laughs> you got your solo record. <laughs> My yeah. solo record. But you mentioned this, though, like Desmond Child Live is a record. And I'm just going to read this for, for, and we'll go through some of these songs later. But uh, it starts with, a, I've never heard of this one, Living on a Prayer. That's a Desmond. You Give Love a Bad Name. Angel, Dude Looks Like a Lady. I Was Made for Loving You. Uh, uh, how Can We Be Lovers? We All Sleep Alone. I mean, Living La Vida Loca. I mean, dude, I mean, can you I leave hate some, myself for loving you. Some, can you leave some good songs for some other people to write, please? <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, though, because when you talk about all of these different acts and all these different brands, you because you were and are the, the, the songwriter to go to if you're looking for a hit. Well, it kind of was like a thing because the bands were competitive then. And so my my crossing over from being an artist with with Desmond Child and Rouge was writing a song with Paul Stanley of Kiss, who was a fan of ours. And he would come and hang out with us in these little clubs in New York. And he said, hey, why don't we try writing a song? And so um, we did. And that was uh, I Was Made for Loving You. And that's when, you know, I was experimenting then with a drum machine and the idea of having dance beats with rock. Mm-hmm had occurred to me. So I kind of hoodwinked him into this idea of this like four on the floor, you know, dance beat with these heavy guitars. Gene never bought it. He never liked he, it. He still this. doesn't. He yeah. doesn't. You know, <laughs> I remember once they made a record, I think it was the elder with, uh, and they, and they, they started doing like hundreds of interviews uh, saying, well, this time we're putting guards in front of the door to keep Desmond Child out. (laughs) And I was so hurt, you know, it's like I called Paul and I said, Paul, why don't you like, you know, like criticize your enemies, not the friends that put money in your pocket. And he says, well, you know, that's Gene. It's not me. Mm -hmm. So like the next day I came home and there was a message on my answering machine and it was like, hi, it's Gene. Sorry. And he hang up. (laughs) (laughs) And he hangs up. (laughs) That was his apology. At least you got one, right? (laughs) But we're still, you know, after all these years, he's been an amazing uh, friend and Mm. and supporter and actually mentor. And, um, you know, so... (laughs) That, that really was a game changer for Kiss and also too like a whole different style of music because if you look at that time frame a lot of rock acts went into kind of a disco-y type vibe whether it be Miss You from the Stones or Do You Think I'm Sexy so I Was Made for Loving You was Kiss's you know delving into that it was a huge hit for them yeah I, I think that we kind of paved the way for a lot of that stuff I mean the song was singular in its uniqueness and um, ever since then popular music hasn't been the same because people started to say hey you can mix genres you don't have to just do one kind of music mm-hmm. and I think that was a kind of really wonderful egalitarian thing that happened and the next decade you know brought us you know Prince and Michael Jackson and Madonna and you know George Michael and Boy George and like so many great acts, the Eurythmics, you know, Dave Stewart and uh, Annie Lennox and all of that using those, you know, dance beats and then singing these cool hip things against those. It's like if you're talking about Michael Jackson, Thriller was based around dance beats with rock guitars. I mean, Beat It's the perfect example of that, right. which would be begat from I Was Made For Loving You in a lot of ways if you look at it that way. Yeah, he owes me. He does. He does. I'm, I'm going to go up to heaven and, <laughs> and collect. I'm surprised you never wrote a tune with Michael Jackson. I tried to. Uh, he asked after I had this ginormous run with Ricky Martin, Live in La Vida Loca, She Bangs, Shake Your Bon Bon. The Cup of Life, right. all of that. Um, I got a message that Mr. Jackson wanted to meet me. So I flew to New York. I went into this townhouse where he had, I think he was already on the run and Neverland was over. Mm-hmm. And uh, I go into this long kind of um, dining room that could seat 50 people and these gorgeous paintings, but it was all very dark. And he comes in in his, in his uh, uh, silk striped pajamas and, uh, you know, baseball cap and big glasses and, you know, um, and we talked for like an hour. And so basically he wanted to know everything about Ricky Martin. So he was kind of using me to say, well, 
where does Ricky go on vacation? Um, what kind of music does he listen to? Uh, who were his influences? And, you know, like he loved fame and he would try to dissect, you know, all the famous people from Elizabeth Taylor to Brooke Shields to, you know, the, the Princess Diana, who he was obsessed with. And he would try to, you know, kind of understand how it is that the public, um, the public's imagination is ignited by these special people. And he became the master of it. Mm-hmm. So it just didn't work out though, as far as trying to write something <laughs> together? Well, I went back to my, um, uh, back to Miami and we said, we're going to write the following week. So I flew back again, very expensive, you know, flights, hotels, you know, everything. And of course I was paying mm-hmm. for it for myself. Mm-hmm. And so I get to the studio at the appointed time at 10 a.m. at Sony Studios in New York. And, uh, you know, there was like a big uh, table, like a layout of food, like catered um, lunch meats and cheeses and all this kind of stuff that could have fed like an army. And then I walked in and then all these cubbies above the, the couch were all these like stuffed animals. And on the couch was a giant like gorilla, fake gorilla. <laughs> and uh, the, the, you know, the engineers were there waiting. And so now it was 12 and he wasn't there. And I started getting like really hot under the, under the collar. So I decided to call the house and uh, he, I call and somebody picks up the phone and goes, Oh, Mr. Child, it's Mr. Jackson's very ill. He's very, very ill. He can't come to the studio. We tried reaching you all weekend, which was not true. And it was him talking to me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like his, his voice is so identifiable. <laughs> right. There was no one else there. <laughs> Mr. Jackson's very, very <laughs> ill. You know, with the little vibrato at sure, the end. Sure, 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 sure. <laughs> so I, I just like, okay, well then you can have his people call my people. And that was the end of it. End of it, right? Um, when you're talking about all these tunes and you mentioned Mickey Martin, you talked about Paul Stanley. And do you sit down with somebody for a while and, and get a sense for them? Or how do you write with, with different people like a Steven Tyler or an Alice Cooper or Ricky Martin, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think my gift is that I have a lot of empathy and I can get into a situation and I can put a person at ease with humor and uh, pretty soon they relax and they start, you know, I start asking a few little pointed questions like what's going on in your life. And then they say, well, I just got divorced. I said, really, what happened there? And then pretty soon tears and all the secrets and the dirt on the person that they hate and, you know, everything starts pouring out of them, uh, almost like a therapist. Right. But I don't have the, the, the code of having to keep anything secret. <laughs> the patient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hippocratic. Oath, whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> the doctor patient, uh, whatever yeah. relationship. And so it, it ends up in a song. Mm. So I never come uh, with anything but maybe a title. Really? That comes to my mind. Hmm. Because I come in cold, but a lot of rival bands that didn't get to work with me started calling me the song doctor because they imagined that those bands, you know, were writing some crap songs. And then I came in there and and turned them into, you know, fix them, (laughs) fix them. But that's never really been the case. I'm a true collaborator and I have chemistry with certain bands like Aerosmith and and of course with Paul Stanley of Kiss and John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora and uh, Alice Cooper, Joan Jett. I mean, I, I my gift is that I have empathy and I feel what they're feeling. And so then we get to the core of what they need to be saying today, not recreating their hits of yesterday, because that's, that's absolutely deadly for an act. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you mention song titles because, you know, I, I'm in a band too and the songs I write, I always come up with titles first and I'll have a whole, you know, my iPhone now, but back in the day it was a little yellow pad of just interesting titles that you'd write down and you're kind of the the, the king of the double entendre, I hate myself for loving you and you give right, all the bad names. What I call the tension of the opposites. And so that's what any true art has. Even if you paint a black canvas, at some point you're going to put it up 
on a white wall mm-hmm. and there'll be corners edges to that canvas that then meet the white that's contrast of opposites mm. and so um i try to do that not only with the title but every line of the song you know to try to have irony alliteration so from line to line you'll you'll feel the bump of you know certain consonants that glue it together and also try to write as many clean rhymes at the ends of words. I, I studied with a with a wonderful songwriter producer, Bob Crew, who wrote all the songs for the four seasons. We spent two years writing songs together. And, you know, he was a stickler, you know, for having the title first and all of these things. And once I started work, working with him, then the hits started pouring out of me because I had that in under my belt. So what kind of, uh, was he teaching you techniques or just ideas or? We were supposed to be writing for my solo project. This is after I left my group, Desmond Child and Rouge in the early 80s. And I had a singles deal. I mean, I was in such a terrible, weak position. And, you know, we did, you know, one single and then I got dropped. I mean, people didn't really understand me. And so then I, I had a hit at that time another hit with kiss called heavens on fire you my, by the way to me the best written kiss song of the 80s <laughs> the best one of the best choruses of the 80s i told paul when they finally started playing it on this tour again i was like you gotta play heavens on fire it's like it's so high i'm like just detune it or, or have yeah Eric singer sing you gotta do that song it's so classic so anyways love heavens on fire great so song. that kind of inspired Bon Jovi because they had a song on one of their records, maybe the first one called In and Out of Love. Mm-hmm. In and Out of Love. <laughs> and that's kind of like a kind of a tip of the hat to feel my heat. Wow. You know, and so <laughs> when, when uh, Bon Jovi was in Europe opening for Kiss, Paul said, why don't you write with Desmond? And so he gave him my phone number and um, I walked, into this little wooden house in New Jersey at the, the edge of a like a vast marsh, brown marsh, like well, you, where you kill people in The Godfather, <laughs> where you park the car and then you shoot them in the head and right. dump them into the marsh. Yeah. And then at the very end was a ref, oil refinery all lit up. It, it, it was like um, Emerald City. <laughs> and in this little house, Richie Sambora lived with his parents. So I walk in the very first day and uh, Richie, who's like the host with the most, like invites me in and I walk past, you know, on his left is his bedroom. And I look in, there's the Farrah Fawcett, you know, uh, <laughs> the poster, <classic> poster. <laughs> Kiss posters, Led Zeppelin. You see all the influences and then messy bed, clothes on the floor. It's like my, my son's now. And then um, John was on a wall phone, an avocado wall phone in the kitchen. And uh, like an avocado? No, the avocado color, (laughs) avocado color, uh, you know, like they had back in the day, like leftover from the 60s. And, uh, you know, with the big bouffant hair from Louis the 14th and uh, the ripped jeans and the jewelry and, you know, all of it. And, um, you know, he was probably talking to his manager, Doc McGee. You know, so he was like, and so Richie showed me downstairs to the basement. It was like Silence of the Lambs down there. <laughs> there was a little Formica table with a little rickety um, keyboard that was kind of like teetering on it. Some space heaters buzzing, some amps buzzing, a cup, you know, couple of guitars on stands, and uh, some dirty transom windows. It was dark and weird down there. And like I, I like sat there for a while, mm-hmm. and then finally they both came downstairs. And the very first thing I did was pull out the title I had in my back pocket, literally written on a little piece of paper that said, you give love a bad name. And the minute I said the title, John's face, I saw my first glimpse of the billion dollar Bon Jovi smile, <laughs> Right. The, all those teeth, you yeah. know, and then he had a song called Shot Through the Heart. So he's not one to let a good hook to go to waste. So he said, shot through, he said, shot through the heart and you're to blame. And then the three of us said, 
you give love a bad name. And that was our first, you know, three-way high five. And uh, we just kept rolling from there. Was that song under a different title or different guys released earlier, like in Europe or something by Bonnie Tyler? Or Yes, I had solely written a song called If You Were a Woman and I Was a Man that started out a cappella. It was produced by Jim Steinman. Mm. So I had written it to order, Jim had called me and he said, you know, I need a song that has a chorus like, um, should sound like, you know, Bruce Springsteen. And the verse should sound like uh, the um, like Tina Turner. Mm. And then the B section's gotta be like the police. So, you know, it was like, uh, I, I put it together, like the verses went, how's it feel to be a woman? How's it feel to be a man? Are we really that different? Tell me where we stand. That was a Tina Turner part. And then came the police part. I look at you, you look away. Why do we say we're night and day? You know, and then comes the chorus that went, if you were a woman and I was a man, what could it, you know, like that. And it's wow. kind of like a knockoff of because the night, right? Right, 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 right. totally. You know, so, because <laughs> the night. You know, yeah. the chords and, you know, it was kind of like had that feeling. It was like a real right. Jersey anthem. So because that song had not hit in the U.S., um, I was like, you know, I'm not one to let a good hook go to waste either. So I suggested I was started playing on the keyboard this kind of like turn, 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 turn. And Richie was like, man, that sounds like Michael Jackson, like Billie Jean, you know, is that or the Eurythmics, man. I said, play it on guitar, but like really kind of distorted and like, like, like kind of chung, 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 chung. And he did it. And it was like magic, you know, so everybody brought something to the table and um, it created a new style, really. Mm-hmm. It, it really opened the door because when they went to make the record, uh, the bass player put in a lot of R&B, you know, kind of uh, Motown rhythm to it. And Living on a Prayer had that as well, that, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, and so it had something for everybody and their music. Sure did. You know, Very but relatable. And, but it had an edge that people were calling heavy metal. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it closely, it really wasn't heavy metal. Mm. It was just like, you know, pop music with an edge and some guys that looked heavy metal. But isn't that the crux of any great song? Uh, I always I always say the, the best songs, whether it's heavy metal, whether it's R&B, whether it's ska, whether it's rap, I can always, if you can envision five guys in a New York back alley with the barrel and fire and they're doo-wop singers, shout through the hunt. And you're t- like whatever it could be, jazz it up any way you want. But a good hook is a good hook, no matter who sings it. Well, that's right. And no, that's not right because it has to really fit the soul of the artist that sings mm, it. Interesting, yeah. You know, and that's one of the reasons I'm very sensitive also to the archetype of the artist I'm working with. Hmm. You know, what like, you mean? well. You know, there are types that have been with us since the Greek and Roman times or before it, you know, pagan uh, gods and goddesses that represent things that are hardwired in our system to worship that, you know, helped our survival, Mm -hmm. the sun god or whatever it is. We had to believe in something. And then in those days, they would have many different faceted, you know, Venus, Mercury, uh, Zeus, mm-hmm. um, Pan, which was the devil, and you know all these kinds of um, strange creatures. So then, once we had mass media and started in the early days of the Hollywood, you would see that they would put out archetypes like beautiful blondes that would be like Venus, mm-hmm. or they'd put out these witchy uh, uh, girls with messy hair that would be Medusa. Mm. And uh, you'd have, you know, the hero, Dudley Do-Right, or that you have Snidely Whiplash. <laughs> so if you were to uh, put John Bon Jovi in one character, would he be Dudley Do-Right or Snidely Whiplash? Oh, Dudley Do-Right. Exactly. And who would Alice Cooper be? <laughs> Snidely Whiplash. Exactly. <laughs> because, you know, uh, John would, is, was like the all-American boy, the, yeah. the boy next door, the working class hero. 
you know, right. Alice Cooper was a creature that, that represented our darkest nature. Hmm. And, you know, when you talk to Alice Cooper, you know, he's the sweetest, yes. the most spiritual kindest Super person. Funny, yeah. But when we went to, uh, when I worked with Alice on an album called trash, you know, he sat me down and explained the rules. He said, well, you know, I'm not Alice Cooper. And I said, what? I'm Vincent Fournier. Alice Cooper was originally the name of my band, but then everybody started calling me Alice. So Alice Cooper is, is a character. And so it's like a character in a play. So when we write for Alice, Alice is, you know, is someone who like does the naughty thing, but then always has to get punished in the end. Mm. So if he cuts the head off a doll, then his head has to go off on the guillotine. <laughs> and so we wrote this very fun, it's kind of an operetta uh, called Trash. And all of the bands that I was working with and other fantastic people like Kane Roberts and um, Jesus, so many people came, came in to work on this Joan Jett, Bon Jovi, um Ozzy in there on that album? No, oh. we couldn't get Ozzy. Okay. But uh we had uh Steven Tyler mm -hmm. and you know and they were all writing and singing on the record. So it was a real community effort. It was like a real barn raising here. <laughs> you know, cuz uh you know at that time, you know, Alice who's, you know, he's he's not a, an ambitious person. You know, he's like very cool to just play golf and Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Chef won't have that though. Chef's the ambition. You know, and so he, he loves it, but you know, only if it's like easy. Mm -hmm. And so, which gives him a relax and also gives him an object, objectivity mm -hmm. to his work because he's not chasing anything. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that Zen quality about him is the reason he's been successful. Now it's six decades mm -hmm. and he's an a true American icon. I think they should put him up on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> he should be the next head. Washington, Lincoln, Cooper. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about what you mentioned, Stephen Tyler, because you were very instrumental in the kind of the, the return of Aerosmith, the, the reinvigoration of their career. Um, right off of the, the, the uh, you know, dude looks like a lady and the permanent vacation record. How did that come to be? And how was it working with those guys when they were pretty crazy back in those days? Well, because of the success that I had with Bon Jovi, I had been hired to work with Cher. Oh, yeah. And Cher and Aerosmith, they had been signed to Geffen Records by one of the greatest A&R men of history, John Claudner. John Claudner, yeah. Uh, and um, he... You know, they had Aerosmith had made a record called Done With Mirrors, which really, you know, wasn't that successful. And so they kind of forced me. John forced me on the on the band. They had never written with, with an outside writer. Really? And um, not even a producer. I mean, they just were very pure and, you know, about their thing. And so I was flown to Boston. A limo takes me to this big giant warehouse where they had set up the, the stage setup with mountains of martial amps. On the floor, though, there, were, th there was an army of guitars, a hundred guitars in rows, like, like every kind of sparkle, uh, Telecaster, you know, uh, Gibson, Les Pauls, of special, uh, you know, vintage and, and uh, kind of uh, boutique ones, rare ones. And they were all in a row, you know, tiger, leopard, you know, <laughs> diamonds, every single kind. So I walk in and Stephen comes up to me, long walk, you know, up to the big warehouse doors. And I just like walk in there and I was a little bit overwhelmed. I didn't know what to expect. And, you know, Stephen's a wonderful, you know, people pleaser type person. And he was very warm and he said, hey, why don't you come here and listen to this? So Joe was off on the side of the stage where the sound guy was and they were looping a guitar loop uh, a guitar backwards and it was going nana 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 it's kind of like a what they called a like a boogie woogie kind of a nana nana yeah. and uh then steven started singing cruising for the ladies da 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 cruising for the ladies and the very first words out of my mouth and they stopped and they looked at me. And I said, that's really bad. 
<laughs> I don't think Van Halen would put that on the B side of their worst record. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, cruising for the ladies, like top down, sunset strip, that's the most tired imagery, you know? And uh, Joe now is getting all curled up, arms crossed, mm -hmm. looking at me sideways. And uh, Stephen, you know, who's still trying to be nice, says, well, you know, when I first started singing that riff, I was singing, dude looks like a lady. And I went, what? Dude looks like a lady. Then Joe interjected and said, but we don't know what that means. And I said, okay, guys, I'm gay. I know what that means. <laughs> Bear with me. And um, little by little, I got them to agree to make the song about this normal dude that just, you know, mm -hmm. you know, working class dude that just walks into a bar and sees this gorgeous, you know, blonde up on the stage and then uh, goes backstage after the show and, you know, and then she whips out a gun, tries to blow me away. <laughs> and the wonderful thing about the song is, especially the second verse, which goes, never judge a book by its cover or who you gonna love by your lover. And that's a song of acceptance. It's not like he ran away. Right. You know, because later he says, my funky lady, I like it, like it, like it, like that. So... I mean, you know, sometimes uh, the song's been criticized by uh, GLBT, you know, kind of LGBT. Okay, yeah. I should know that. <laughs> LGBTQNRDX, right. uh, whatever it is now. <laughs> All these different yeah. <laughs> different things start adding to the to the to the to the line to the lineup. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes we'd been criticized that, you know, dude looks like a lady's kind of like an insert insult to transgender. It's like, no, man, listen to the second verse. Never judge a book by its cover or who you're going to love by your lover. If that isn't like open your heart, you know, I don't know what is. Mm. And so that song helped to, you know, put them right back on the map. I mean, that went straight Huge. to the top. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then we went on from there, you know, uh, we wrote Angel and Crazy and What It Takes. And I think I've written like about 20 something songs with them yeah. through the years. It, it used to be like when, for example, when, because uh, I'm a big Kiss fan, 80s fan, Kiss in the 80s, because that's the era I got into Kiss. And I would always look at the album, like, you know, you'd go to take the bus downtown, buy mm -hmm. the Kiss album, and I would look at it. Any Desmond Child song I automatically liked before I even heard it. Because I love Paul and Desmond's collaborations. And then when that went on to the Aerosmith and then Alice Cooper, anytime I saw Desmond Child, I'd be like, oh, that's going to be a good song, even before you even listen. You know, and, and nine times out of 10, they'd be killer tunes. You know what I mean? So I've only written one really bad song. Which one? With Kiss. Oh, which one? It's called You Make Me Rock Hard. <laughs> That's also that's on the same album as Let's Put the X in Sex, which yeah. is a great no, song. That one is a great song. I love song. that song. But there's also uh, All Night. That, I actually think that that one's a really good song. Yeah. But Let's Put the X in Sex was like a joke in a way because we had co-written it with Diane Warren, who I hoodwinked and dragged her into the session with me and Paul. <laughs> And uh, before the session, Diane said, well, what are we going to write? Let's come up with a title. So we said, oh, you make me rock hard. And we just giggled and laughed. I said, I'll never go for that. That's like just so <laughs> stupid, you know, it's so obvious. And uh, we presented the song. To Paul? To Paul, uh, the title. Yeah. And I like that. And right away, let's put the X in sex, you know. And uh, like Diane was like, kind of cracking up the whole time <laughs> she never written a song like that still one of the greatest titles let's put the x in sex it's the epitome of what's great and to other people what's bad about 80s kiss i think it's amazing so you're talking about uh, ricky martin because the vita loca when we spoke earlier, I'll ask this question. When we spoke earlier, six months ago, I asked this question, but I'll ask you later on. But Levita Loca has got to be one of your top three biggest tunes. It is. And actually, we just celebrated our 20th year of the release of Live in La Vida Loca, which made it all the way to number one. And it was the first song we made recording history. It's the first song completely recorded digitally in the box is what they called it at hmm. that time. Mixed in the box everything in the box and um, 
we we went all the way to number one, and the Wall Street Journal reported it as a recording history moment. It's the first time recorded completely on computers, you mean? On computers uh, with Pro Tools. Gotcha. And these Mackie boards that mm-hmm. were these little digital boards. We didn't go into a studio or anything like that. The drums were all programmed, everything. And it really, I mean, there was an article that came out today that said, you know, that Live in La Vida Loca was the thing that changed the course of Latin music forever mm-hmm. because the, the trajectory from Live in La Vida Loca to Despacito, uh, written by Erica Ender and Luis Fonsi, and, you know, was number one, you know, just last year for 37 weeks. I mean, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. The sound of music changed because the digital sound gave it like an edge that when you heard it, even on a little speaker, just jumped out. Mm -hmm. And also prior to that, Latin music producers were using a lot of reverb on everything and and a lot of kind of pop elements that weren't really in the nature of Latin music. So one of the things I wanted to do when I went back to work in Miami and live there was to combine all the, the kind of things I had learned from Kiss, Bon Jovi, and Aerosmith, this, you know, how to write for stadium anthems and put it into Latin music. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, then there was this, you know, gorgeous young Latin star that had already been famous, already had an image. And um, he was assigned to um, Columbia Records. And uh, his name is Ricky Martin. Mm. And um, I worked with him and his producer, Draco Rosa. Draco and I actually wrote and produced the songs. And Ricky was, you know, very busy touring. So he would come in and we'd get him for a couple of hours and get him to sing. And it was, you know, that's how we did it. And uh, we had the World Cup theme, La Copa de la Vida, which the Cup of Life, which was the, what he sang on the Grammys. And from that moment on, it was like a whole new world. And all the other Latin producers and all that, it's like, who the heck is, is Desmond Child? Mm-hmm. What is that gringo doing here? <laughs> and, and in our market. And so, you know, the thing is, is that they didn't realize that I'm actually Cuban. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Miami. And I went to high school in Miami Beach High. And, you know, I, my grandmother salsa danced. I mean, I grew up with all that. My mother was the songwriter, Elena Casals, who wrote beautiful Latin boleros. And so they didn't, they just woke up to the fact that, hey, I'm one of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's been a wonderful journey because this year uh, I helped to co-found the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame. And we have a show called La Musa Awards, which happens every late October. And we just celebrated our seventh annual mm-hmm. uh, La Musa Awards. Uh, and uh, the whole Latin industry really takes it seriously. And we had, you know, Pitbull this year and like amazing people. Well, if, you, if you think about it, you know, you basically did with Latin music that what you did with, with combining rock with dance beats on I Was Made For Loving You, you did the same thing 30 years later, 20 years later, whatever it was with La Vida Loca, because now <laughs> I'm just doing the same old thing yeah, which, which, I've been doing for 50 years. But it's trailblazing because like you mentioned, after Ricky did that, then you get Shakira and then there's uh, Pitbull and there's, like you said, Despacito. And it's just one after another. But it started with La Vida Loca, as far as I know, from yeah. a layman standpoint. You totally. Know? So that, I think that's another kind of indirect yeah. pioneering Desmond Child uh, uh, technique as well. You looking something up? Yeah, I want to just show you what came out today. Look at this article. That came out today. As the Latin Grammys turn 20, the U.S. is living La Vida Loca. Latin music has never been more central to pop culture. There you go. Right? Perfect, yeah. February 99, Ricky Martin made uh, music history, Copa Vida. Yeah, I mean, that's living La Vida Loca, the Latin explosion, which basically was quarterbacked by Desmond Child. That's right. That's what I told them. <laughs> you tell them. But that's what I mean. And, and so it's funny to me, not funny, but interesting that you have your record Desmond Child Live, which is, is this the first time you've ever sang these, these songs live in front of a crowd? These three nights that I did in a little club in, in New York City called Feinstein's 54 Below, underneath the famous Studio 54. Oh, okay. That's where the, you know, kind of 
the orgy room was originally. <laughs> a lot of drugs were done down there. And I brought all my friends together and we recorded three nights and that's what makes this record. But the truth is I'd never performed live as a solo artist ever. I had my group back then for a couple of years. I'd never been on a stage performing, you know, my own music. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very it's a very un- unique record, you know, because um, it's me doing the songs kind of my way. And uh, it's kind of fun being able to hear it stripped down and from another perspective. Mm-hmm. And singing the lead vocals too. Wh- which of these songs is the hardest for you to sing? I think um, you want to make a memory, uh-huh. which is uh, one of the hits that I had with Bon Jovi. And it, it have I like, for me, it's like, you know, I, to sing it, I have to really like reach up there for the for the notes and mm-hmm. all that. But I had some help with some of the other songs. A wonderful young twenty uh, two year old rock singer Justin Ben Lolo, who's on. I I know he's you know the label he's on is associated to Universal. He's making his record now. Tabitha Fair um, sang and also Lena Hall, the Tony Award winning mm. Lena Hall, who sang uh, Joan Jett's "I Hate Myself for Loving You." Which, by the way, has had a, a new comeback because it's been the theme song for. Well, at first, it was Monday Night Football, yeah. and then became Sunday Night Football, and it was originally sung by Faith Hill, Pink, and then they brought in Carrie Underwood, who everyone thought, "Oh no, she shouldn't sing that. She should sing some country thing." So for a few years, they tried this country theme song and it didn't stick didn't work right made her go right back and now she's right there rocking out with joan jett playing guitar and i could not be prouder what's it called like i can't wait for sunday night or yeah i can't I can't wait, wait for, for sunday, sunday night. night yeah <laughs> so it, that's what's called an interpolation right but that's a wonderful thing that when 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 there's a melody that's classic like that you can put any lyrics to it like in let's say a translation other languages and it's still the same song let me ask you this it just stuck in my head you're talking about the you know, 80s and 90s and how many records were sold up until a certain point probably about 2004 or 5 when record sales started going down and now it's pretty much non-existent does it does it still do you still receive royalties like you used to now with streaming and all these other ways you mentioned Monday Night Football using your a version of your song? Well, with the streaming, I mean the rates are you know slowly going to lift. Mm. But I'll give you an example. Um, last year, uh, Living on a Prayer got um, half a billion streams between <laughs> Pandora and Spotify. That's as much as a current hit song, right? Oh, at least, yeah. You know, 30, more. 30 years later. And uh, my take-home pay was $6,000. You're kidding me. That was it. Wow. And so, you know, songwriters have really Good gotten the, sh- the short end of the stick um, when all of this was set up at the beginning. And so that's why we've been fighting and fighting. And last year, we had a victory uh, with the Music Modernization Act mm-hmm. uh, that was signed 100% bipartisan. Nobody said nay. They, the, both houses of Congress and President Trump signed it into law. Mm. And, but it's going to take six years, seven years for us to see any difference. So it's a great start, mm-hmm. but also got everybody aware that you know, songwriting is a is is a vocation. It's, sure, a, it's, it's an art. It's a career. Yeah. Aside from the art, like working songwriters in Nashville, I mean, you know, they used to be able to maybe get a song on a Trisha Yearwood record and feed their family. Mm-hmm. And now that's not the case unless your song's a single. And it and so when I first came to Nashville in 1991, in you know when rock died. <laughs> and Nirvana came in <laughs> and I said, oh my God. And I heard some music and I said, that sounds like Bon Jovi, but with a twang, it was Garth Brooks. Ah. And I said, okay, I'm going to go there and get a, a song with Garth Brooks. So I came to Nashville and I wrote my first song with Victoria Shaw called Where Your Road Leads, which was the song that Garth Brooks sang with Trisha Yearwood and made them fall in love. 
So you got that too. I made country music history. <laughs> it was not the biggest hit, but we made country music history with that. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so it's rock and roll, it's Latino music, and now yeah. it's this, this too. But my point was when I first got here, there were 5,000 plus writers signed to publishing companies, big and small. And I think last count was like 267. Wow. You know, right, right, right. That have actual deals. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of the independents all, you know, sold out to the the big uh, corporations, mm-hmm. and so all those catalogs have been combined. But nobody knows those catalogs. So you know, there's each could there could be millions upon millions of songs that nobody's hearing mm-hmm. because only the people that wrote them, who may not even be around anymore, knew about them. And so you know, that's kind of what happens you know and so then music just becomes about what single do you have today right right right. what about for you like for like for example classic rock radio i mean there's a desmond child song probably played once an hour uh, probably hundreds of times around the states and around the world oh well that's what i was gonna say terrestrial radio is really you know and maybe when people license the songs to be in a movie mm-hmm. and all that that's the only place we we get a fair shake that's the bread and butter now and so that's you know it's it's a nickel and dime business mm-hmm. but you know if you get played enough times there's enough to you know mm-hmm. feed your family right and so i'm just hoping that um you know territories like china start paying us royalties mm. instead of just manufacturing copies of our songs and ignoring our copyright laws. Mm. You know, it's time that all the countries in the world respect each other's intellectual property. It's kind of like that in South America too, right? It's just kind of a bootleg. No, no? it's better. Is it's it? better in Latin America. Yes. Especially the, you know, every country in Latin America has a PRO. Mm-hmm. And they all, you know, uh, when I'm working at the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame, they all work with us and they submit the names of their top writers for, you know, induction or to be honored. Uh, they're actually paying. But, um, you know, in certain territories, we're, we're, we're getting nothing. But you can be assured that my songs are known by, are heard by almost everyone on earth. Absolutely. You know, One version or you know the, they don't even know who wrote it. Or who sang it? They all they know is they know the song. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think I still have a chance, you know, with my record Desmond Child Live. I'm just no, that's my song. That's my song. <laughs> let's let's talk about you kind of crossing over into into the movie business. How you mentioned that you're uh, producing movie. On a, it's a very interesting subject that I think a lot of people have forgotten about. Talking about Lou Pearlman, the manager creator of the Backstreet Boys. 20 years ago, a a young Swedish songwriter came to visit me because he was on this kind of quest, his uh, lifelong quest, uh, because he was like such a total KISS fan, was to meet everybody and anybody that had anything to do with KISS. Mm -hmm. So he was in Florida and he stopped by to see me and we made really great friends. His name is Andreas Carlson. Mm. And he started telling me about O-Town, which is what... Blue Perlman named uh, Orlando and the boy bands and the the kind of like, it was like, like Motown. Mm -hmm. So they called it O-Town. So it was a real music making factory. And, you know, they dealt in, they had a couple of all girl bands, all girl, you know, pop bands, but mainly it was boy bands, you know, and um, Lou Perlman was a, you know, financial genius. But he also, you know, in order to bankroll the whole operation, he started a half a, what is it? Like, yeah, $500 million Ponzi scheme, half a billion dollar Ponzi scheme on the Madoff level right? that, you know, bankrupted many retirees in the Tampa Bay area. And he was able with those bands to keep paying the, the dividends. But when the bands left him, everything started to, you know, dry up and the, the, the investors started calling the feds saying, I didn't get my checks. There's something wrong here. So then the news started getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And he started all these crazy other little bands that didn't make it. And then finally, you know, the news got so tight, he went on the run and um, he ended up in Bali 
where uh, somebody saw him and snapped the picture and the feds, you know, came and extradited him. So he, he was, went he to was, prison. He was taking investments from people to, to fund the Backstreet Boys. For well, example. actually, it was the other way around. It was they were so successful. But the thing is that he couldn't back out of the Ponzi scheme he had started. Like the original money helped to fund the making of the Backstreet Boys. He spent $3 million before they had their first hit on the Backstreet Boys. I understand. On traveling, on videos, on clothes, on mall tours. Promotion, and ev yeah. Everything it, before they hit with their first single. He made that investment. But that money came from the Ponzi scheme. But later... The, the cash, you know, on the table that it took to run the Ponzi scheme was coming from the proceeds of the Backstreet Boys and wow. sync, and they weren't getting their fair share. So they left him and took him to court and it, the whole thing was crazy. How'd you get involved in producing a movie about it then? Well, because back in 1998, when he told me about it, I said, this should be a movie. Now, none of the, the, the story didn't even get good till later, <laughs> but I just thought it, he was a fascinating character. And actually he and I were honored by the Grammys with the uh, Naris uh, Governor's Award in Florida. So, you know, it's so amazing. I looked at the invitation. I saw my name right next to his, <laughs> and that's when I met him the one and only time I met him. But I, you know, Andreas and I, uh, um, optioned the rights to a book called The Hit Charade by Tyler Gray. And there was also a, a very intense article in the Vanity Fair by Brian Burrow called Mad About the Boys. And um, we optioned that article as well. And with those rights, we were able to make a partnership with Pressman Film, who had done American Psycho. And, I mean, they'd made 85 films. And Greg Basser, who had been the head of um, Roadshow, Village Roadshow. Now he has a new company called Gentle Giant. He's Australian. And uh, David Anton, who's a marketeer, you know, guru and branding guru. And uh, we've been just working on putting this movie together and it's all rolling forward. And we're like really excited because we'll get to write a lot of new music, mm -hmm. you know, especially because, um, you know, all these bands, you know, that are kind of, you know, that he tried desperately to do. We can write all those songs. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? So have you cast it yet? No, no, no. That the director will do that. And yeah. We're chasing like this very big director right now. And like, it's taken months, months. but uh, it's yeah. worth the wait. And we haven't, they haven't said no. So it's like, um, well, it's, it's, it's made for, for movies, especially the fact that everyone knows the Baxter boys and Justin Timberlake and NSYNC and all that sort of stuff. Well, it's not really going to be about them because the, our movie starts when they actually left him. Gotcha. But still, and the Ponzi scheme, it's a crime story with music, but there'll be flashbacks. Time, right. Yeah. So we're not telling the life story of any of those, you know, really interesting characters, right, right, right. but you might see flashbacks of, you know, the, those bands performing. As we start to, to, to wind down here, do you write a lot of music still for a lot of different performers? I mean, well, I mean, uh, I had a hit with Katy Perry yeah. a few years ago called Waking Up in Vegas. And uh, that's, that, like a, that's one I had no idea you even did until I looked it up. Yeah. So that was the number one song. And then with Zed, um, my buddies, Rock Mafia, uh, Antonina, uh, Antonina Armato and Tim James have a production company called Rock Mafia. And uh, we wrote a song called Beautiful Now that uh, Zed loved and turned it into this big EDM hit. So that was a number one hit. So basically I've managed a number one hit every, you know, for every five decades, at least one. So I'm good till next year. <laughs> and actually there's a song coming up uh, that I, I um, co-wrote uh, with Eva Max. She's a pop artist. And so I have the next single on that. So I'm really excited about it. And didn't you say that you had one with, uh, with Alice Cooper coming out? Oh, yes. Well, I'm going to be uh, dropping singles on my own that are going to be duets with, you know, a lot of the artists that I work with, but it's of new music. Mm -hmm. So the first one up is Alice Cooper. That's, that's a great partner to, to be with, right? Yeah. So I guess uh, coming down to it, what do you, what's oh, your, my book? Oh, well, you got my a book, book too. Well, yeah, I'm my sure book. some of these stories will be in the book. Yes. How, how did you like writing? A, write, tell us about your book. Well, I decided that I needed an autobiography. So I I'd had, say so. I read 
this amazing book about Aretha Franklin called Respect. Uh, that was a, a biography, not an, it was an unauthorized biography written by David Ritz. And um, I just tracked him down and I went to see him and he's amazing. He's just like a Zen, you know, his tattoos and like shaved head and like, he's like a Zen master. <laughs> and I went to see him. I mean, he's written, you know, books, Ray Charles, um, Marvin Gaye, like the biggest stars, including Joe Perry's mm -hmm. book. It's a great book. And um, he's been working on now, one now with Lenny Kravitz. And so I went to see him and within seconds, he started asking me questions and I burst into tears. Mm. It was like, wow. You know, the little pointed questions he started asking me like, you know, and so he agreed to do it. And uh, we spent three and a half years writing wow. it. Now, yeah. And we're still tweaking it and it's going to be released this spring. Mm -hmm. And it's called Living on a Prayer, Big Songs, Big Life with David Ritz. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm very proud of it. And, um, you know, it's painful looking back. It really is because I had a very difficult childhood. My mom was a single mom. We lived in the ghettos, really, the projects of Liberty City. And, um, you know, she was a songwriter and she struggled to get her songs cut. And uh, when I made it, you know, my first money with I Was Made For Loving You, I just said, okay, you're not, you're not allowed to bring one thing. I bought her all new clothes, new furniture, new pots and pans, everything. Bought her an apartment on Miami Beach, new car, you know, new everything. And, you know, uh, I had her living like a queen till she passed away. Mm -hmm. So that was a big motivating factor for me to be successful, to be able to take care of my mom. Let's talk about your biggest song, uh, Living on a Prayer. We haven't really talked about it a lot. Uh, I mentioned when we were sat sitting together at the Battle of the Bands, I said, what's your biggest song? And you said, by far, it's Living on a Prayer. You named your book after it. Tell us a little bit about, about that tune and kind of who's Tommy, who's Gina. Is that your tune, John's tune? Well, no, we wrote the song, from, we, we wrote the song from scratch. We, we, several weeks before, we had already written uh, You Give Love a Bad Name. So I came back, and then uh, we borrowed an apartment from a friend of mine, Doug Schneider, that was on 23rd Street and 8th, off of <laughs> uh, off of 8th Avenue in New York City. And it was this tiny little apartment, but it had this like beat up old, you know, upright grand piano. Uh, half the notes were sticking and all yellowed keys. And, uh, you know, they sat in chairs behind me. And, um, you know, John wanted to write a story song. So... You know, I started playing these spooky chords on the piano that, um, you know, inspired a lot by my one of my heroes is Laura Nero, N-Y-R-O, and um, my son's named after her, mm. which he doesn't like. <laughs> but <laughs> um, and so, you know, this I think the three of us brought our own story to this to the story of Tommy and Gina. I mean, for me, I. Before, you know, in Desmond Child and Rouge, I had co-founded the group with my girlfriend at the time, Maria Vidal. And she used to work at a little diner called Once Upon a Stove. And they, they had singing waiters and waitresses. And her stage name there was Gina Velvet. <laughs> and so, you know, my original name is John Barrett. So, you know, like I was Johnny. And so I suggested Johnny and Gina because it had alliteration. And John said, no, 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 I'm Johnny. Oh, I, right. I can't sing about like people think I'm singing about myself. And so then we kind of like pick, picked out of the air. I don't know which one of us said Tommy. It was like a, <laughs> a sound alike. Yeah. And th that's when uh, Tommy and Gina were born. Mm -hmm. a, story, a story song, very much a Springsteen type idea, which of course is one of John's heroes for sure. Well, really? I mean, I don't see it quite that way, you mm -hmm. know, because my influence is so much Laura Nero. And so it really, to me, sounded more like that. But, you know, I think when, you know, the kind of um, uh, anthemic choruses, I think it, it, it did follow in the kind of because the night kind of um, again, yeah. again, you know, kind of we don't. We, we 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 beat it to death you know <laughs> that kind of uh lifting feeling and when we got to the 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 pre-chorus which was we got to hold on to what we got 
It doesn't make a so difference great. if we make it or not. We got each other and, and that's a lot for love. We'll give it a shot. That was the chorus. Mm. And then, I don't know, something in me said, let's write another chorus on top of that. And that's, you know, and I'll never forget Richie when we were singing, oh, we're halfway there. And then Richie shouted out, oh, he was the one that came up with that note that goes up. And then, uh, and, uh, and, and then that, that was, the, you know, like the second high five, you know, triple high five, triple high five <laughs> so moment. Richie, Richie came up with the most butchered note in karaoke history. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he absolutely did. <laughs> but I mean, like, like you said, every football game, every one of the one of the best songs in, in, in modern music history, for sure. I got uh, a text from a, a friend of mine who's a congressman. Uh, from Georgia, his name is Doug Collins, and um, you know we may not agree on politics, but he is like one of the most fantastic people, warm and really understands music, and a real he- a hero uh, at the you know for songwriters and the you know really led the, the the fight you know for the Music Modernization Act, and he texted me a billboard. He said ninety five thousand people were singing "Living on a Prayer" karaoke at a game. Oh, right. yeah, in in Georgia, right, yeah, and yeah. he was there, right. and it was like wow, mm-hmm. ninety five thousand. I mean, at once, yeah. and he was like right there, and like and I saw the lyrics on the screen. <laughs> I mean, that's a good feeling, you know. Going to a Bon Jovi concert, I mean. They do a lot of songs that we co-wrote together, um, you know. So There's so many great ones. Too. I know, like "Born to Be My Baby" and so many. You know, keep the, faith. keep the faith. Keep the faith. Amazing tune, yeah. And um, but of course, you know, John will n- never sing "Living on a Prayer" till the very last song of the very last encore. So now it's 11.30, quarter to 12, <laughs> and parents are there, the kids are like asleep on their shoulders, <laughs> you know, with yeah. their little earplugs on, and then no one will leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one will leave without hearing that song. So he keeps that audience in the palm of his hand all the way They're to the end. They're waiting for it. Yeah. They're waiting for it. But then when they do play it, you can't hear the band do it. All you hear is people screaming at the top of the lungs like if their lives depended on it. <laughs> that anthem like they just screaming it you can't hear the band it's like most amazing experience it's like goosebumpy mm-hmm. and you see people there older people you know in their 70s 80s white hair and then these little toddlers are there you're looking at like three or four generations yeah. all loving you know that same song something that you created yeah you know and i i just like i feel very fulfilled you know with all of that and, um, you know, it's been the, the song that has kept us going. We call it Living Room on a Prayer. <laughs> last, last two questions for you. Besides Living on a Prayer, what are, your, what are your three biggest songs? Living on a Prayer, Living La Vida Loca, I Hate Myself for Loving You, Dude Looks Like a Lady, Now It's More Than Three. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're... they're, they're, I, mean, they're I was made for loving you. Oh, that's, that's like in the top top one or two. I mean... I, I was made for loving you get so much mileage. Huge. Remember the movie Why Him? It yeah. was all over that. And there's Gene playing it, you know, <laughs> well, just probably thinking about the paycheck. Yeah. Even uh, we had this thing, it was Dance Fever, something like where kids dance along with the the, the silhouettes on the video game. Uh-huh. And I, I danced, I was made for loving you with my kids probably 50 times. It's a great <laughs> dance part. And you do it all together and everything like that. What, is, is there a song of yours that's your favorite that wasn't a huge hit? Well, yes, a song that I wrote with Paul Stanley and Holly Knight called Hide Your Heart. Oh. And we, I first recorded it with Bonnie Tyler. Mm-hmm. And her whole record had one hit after the other. I mean, I was able to get a song out of Holly Knight that was one of the best songs in the world that I'd ever heard. I didn't co-write it. She wrote, co-wrote it with Mike Chapman. And it's called Simply the Best. Mm. And the record company said, you don't have any hits on this record. (laughs) Simply the best. And two years later, Tina Turner cuts it. Two years later. So then Bonnie couldn't do it in her show anymore. Because it it wasn't her song anymore. It sounded like she was doing a cover. But she was the one that brought that song to life. Mm -hmm. And Tina's version is exactly like hers. So, I mean, I had that song... um, 
you know, just like Jesse James. Um, I had so many hit songs, you know, Hide Your Heart. Um, and people, you know, at the record company, they just didn't hear it. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, there's a problem between, you know, the U.S. company at the time and the English company she was signed to. And they were having internal fights and she got like slipped right through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And she's the most adorable Great, one of the greatest, most prepared singers. We did it up at Bearsville Sound. She never brought a lyric into the into the into the sound booth. She knew the song by heart. Mm. I never saw an artist do that. Right, 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 right. And and she'd sing it once, twice, maybe three times. It would perfect. And so it was one of the joyous, most joyous experiences uh, making that record. And you'll, you'll, you'll listen to that record and you hear one hit after the other after the other, including my version of To Love Somebody by the Bee Gees that she sang. Two years later, Michael Bolton had a number one <laughs> with that same arrangement. So, you know, I've had a very amazing life. I've been blessed and continue to be blessed and you know i work really hard i i was blessed with talent and also you know all the things that i thought were against me being latino being poor uh being gay all of those things turned out were the pluses mm -hmm. that made me who i am today the character right yeah well desmond man what, a, what an honor to talk to you like i said latin music disco rock country music putting together garth brooks and trisha yearwood i mean come on man can you, can you cure cancer next please <laughs> can you write an anti-cancer song that cures cancer <laughs> thank okay, you okay let's do go. it now no more cancer <laughs> thanks man all right desmond child's new record is called desmond child live it's a great collection of all the hit tunes he's written over the years performed by desmond himself and his uh, great band so get it wherever you stream or download music and uh how many hits does this guy have? It's absolutely unbelievable. So 70 top uh, top 40 hits. Good for Desmond. Great guy and uh, great show. So coming up on Friday, he's the Spanish god, the Spanish sex god of the inner circle. He's telling his story here first. Sammy Guevara on Talk is Jericho, my protege and uh, my partner in crime. He's got a great story as well. So we will see you on Friday. Until then, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs, and a big, yeah, boy, living on a path.